Today we're picking up where we left off last week and studying the doctrine of the church. And for those of you who were here last week, you'll recall that we defined the church as the community of all true believers from the time of Pentecost till the time of the rapture. And um, so the church is made up of those people whom Christ loves, whom He died for, whom He saved. And um, so we also examined the nature and the attributes of the church. And we ended by talking about the marks of a true church. And I put this continuum on the board to show that there are various levels of um, there are various levels of uh, a truth when it comes to church. And we said that the main two marks of a church are a right preaching of the word and a right administration of what? Of the ordinances, right? And that's that comes from the reformers, John Calvin specifically. And so that's where we're going to go today. We want to look at these two main marks of a of a healthy church, one that's over here, so that we can tell which ones are are pleasing to God, right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances. And um so we'll we'll uh We'll start with the right preaching of the word, but before we do, let's ask God's help as we as we look into this today. Father, we're thankful that uh, for this truth that we've just sung about that that you sent your Son Jesus, who is God and and uh, who is able to die for us, and uh, and so we look to Him, we adore Him. And at the same time, we hate our sin and, and hate to see what it caused. We hate to see what it causes even now in ourselves and, and, and in other people. We just ask for your, your grace for us to look to Jesus Christ and to, to look to Him for grace. May you strengthen us this hour as we reflect on uh, your church and the beauty of it and the, the need to rightly administer uh, the Word and the right, to rightly administer the ordinances that you have set up to remind us of the purity that needs to be in our church and pray that you'd help us to be um, willing to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances. Let's start with the the right preaching of the word. The if you think about it, from even the Old Testament, the preaching of the Word uh, is central to how God works. Um, the primary means by which God grants life is through His Word. For example, in the Old Testament, God created the material universe how? I mean, what was the means? It was His Word, right? He spoke. Um he gave His law to the chosen people, Israel. How? It was through His Word. It was through this Word that He gave to Moses. And these weren't just idle words. That Deuteronomy 32.47 says that these words gave them life. And it actually extended their lives in the Promised Land. And, um, and He did the same thing in the prophets. He guided and protected His people uh, through the prophets through their Word, basically through God's Word through them. And so it shouldn't surprise us that God's Word remains central to the church as well. Um, 
In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians one twenty one, God was pleased through the foolishness of what? Through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Turn with me to Romans chapter ten, and here's a key a key passage here when it comes to God giving life through the Word. Romans chapter ten. Look at verse 9 with me. Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Skip down to verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. For Paul, the right preaching, the right uh, utterance of the Word is is the most important thing. And, um, and we see this here in this passage. How can a person believe without having first heard what was spoken? That is, how can they hear or how can they believe without first having... Oh, boy. Uh, thank you. All right, we'll have to play this by ear here. I think those are all extras. All right. Thank you, Mark. So how can a person hear without, or how can they respond without having heard the Word? Turn over to Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, because I think uh, Paul's message to Timothy here has this underlying truth that the Word of God is central to, to a person receiving faith, and so should be central to our church, what our church is about, the right preaching of the Word. Second Timothy chapter 3, would someone read verses 15 through chapter 4, verse 2? So 3.15 to 4.2. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Don't make it easy to change chapters. Four through what first? Four, one, and two. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Okay, so Paul's talking to young Timothy here um, as a preacher, to a preacher. And in verse 15, he says, You know the sacred writings that you've heard from the time that you were young. You learned from your 
mother and grandmother we know from chapter 1. And that all Scripture is profitable, verse 16, so that the man of God may be adequate, approved for every good work, verse 17. And then he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, your most important responsibility, Timothy, is this. It is to preach the Word. You need to be ready in season, out of season. You need to be ready to rebuke, to exhort. And so you need to be able to preach the Word. And this is all... What I'm trying to show you is that the central and most important mark of a godly, pure, healthy church is the right preaching of God's Word. That there should be a right um, emphasis on the preaching of God's Word and there should be a priority on God's Word. So that means that that we as a church need to be able to handle the Word of God uh, rightly. So what is this? How does this work? How does what does the right preaching of God's word look like? Well, the right preaching of God God's word first of all exalts God Himself. The right preaching of God's word exalts God Himself. It will always commend Jesus Christ and the gospel. That the heart of the Scripture is that God sent His Son to suffer for us and to, to grant to us who were sinners and deserving of His wrath to grant to us eternal life. And so the right preaching of God's Word recognizes what God is saying in Scripture and exalts God, not man. Secondly, the right preaching of God, God's Word preaches all of God's Word. The right preaching of God's Word endeavors to preach all of God's Word. The whole counsel of God. Because, look at chapter 3, verse 16 again, all Scripture is inspired by God. So, we don't choose, that is, we as, as those who preach, we don't choose what is most important in the Scripture. We, we preach the Scripture and God chooses which mo- what's most important. And so those things, those themes that you keep hearing over and over again when I preach, they're not because this is my little hobby horse. I want to get this burned into your brain. No, this is what God is saying. That's why I try to show you that the point of my sermon comes from the point of the text. And when we do this, then God, I think, is honored. Um, then that, that really shows a, uh, when it's done rightly, I should say. It's, it sh- it's a right preaching of, of the Word. Paul says that I have not failed, Acts 20, 28, I have not failed to teach to you the whole counsel of God. Okay? I'm not just giving you my favorite little passages, my little, um, my little uh, things that I, I really like, but, but I'm giving you the entire Scriptures because it's all profitable. And so that means that as a church, we should, we should value that and we should encourage that that sort of thing, and we should not um, be frustrated when we get to passages that, you know, do we really have? Is there really any value in Leviticus or or in the prophets or things like that? I mean, Second Timothy three sixteen says that all Scripture is profitable for for helping us to become more like Christ. So if that's the case, then then uh, that includes places like Leviticus and. If you were here a couple Wednesday nights ago, you were able to profit from a passage like Leviticus chapter 9 from Pastor Tim Davis. Alright, so the right preaching of God 
uh, of God's Word exalts God and it preaches all of God's Word. Any questions on that? Any comments? Yes, Bill. Right. And, uh, you know, as church members who don't get up and preach, um, you still have a responsibility to understand and be able to rightly divide the truth because you have to know when you're hearing truth. And that's why Acts 17, the Bereans were searching the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Um, if you're not thinking in a critical way, and I don't mean cynical, I mean critical in a positively crit- uh, in a positive sense, if you're not thinking in a critical way, you know, then then basically, no matter what anyone says, then you will accept this truth if they attach a Bible verse to it. Do you know what I mean? But Paul said to the Galatians, you know, if anyone preaches to me another gospel other than the one that I preach to you, then let them be accursed. And so that implies that they need to know what the gospel is. They need to know when to deny what is being preached. And so, um, I think sometimes it's helpful when, um, sometimes it's helpful just to follow along with someone who's, who's preaching the Word and say, okay, I agree with that. I don't fully understand it, but I agree. But, but it also can be very dangerous if you just simply uh, don't think critically at all. And so, I think we all have responsibility to rightly divide the truth. All right, the right administration of ordinances. Okay, and, and we talked about what the two ordinances were last week. Do you remember what they were? One of them's right up there. Baptism and the other one's in your handout. Lord's Supper. Okay, you may not have needed those helps, but, but there they are. Okay, baptism is an act of obedience in which a believer in Christ publicly confesses his faith. Okay, so if you want to just make it very simple, it's a public confession of faith by a believer. Okay, it's, a, it's an act of obedience that every believer must must make. Let me give you three biblical statements because there's a lot of debate in the churches at large over this idea of baptism. And really it has to do with its significance. And so let me give you three biblical statements that will help point us to what a biblical baptism looks like. Number one, only believers should be baptized. We talked about this last week. Believers' baptism. Um, it's important to understand. In fact, turn to. Let me let me just have three volunteers look up these three verses. Can I have a show of hands? Jonathan Acts two forty one, Ken Acts eight twelve, and Paul Acts eight thirty six. So Jonathan Acts two forty one, Acts eight twelve, and Acts eight thirty six. Okay, so baptism is supposed to be an outward sign of our relationship with Christ that follows our actual conversion. And this is seen in these three verses. So let me have Jonathan read this first one. So then those who had received His Word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Okay, so which people were baptized? 
those who received the Word. Alright, those who received the Word. That, that's the idea of actually receiving it personally, taking on um, uh, actual conversion. Acts 8.12. Ken? But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Alright. So it's after they believed the good news that they were baptized. Okay, so what we're trying to what I'm trying to show here is that there's a pattern here. That baptism always follows salvation. Having received the word or believed the good news. Acts eight thirty six. All right, and what I didn't have Paul read was the context there, which is where Philip actually is on the chariot and he's giving the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Following his acceptance of the gospel, then Philip sa- or uh, the Ethiopian official says, "Here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized?" Okay, so again, it follows a genuine conversion. Um, and so that doesn't work if baptism precedes salvation. These passages don't fit then if baptism comes before. And so that means that we cannot allow infants to be baptized since infants are incapable of making a public confession of faith in Christ. Um, And uh, this really has made quite a divide in what type of church we are, the nature of the church. What's our church going to be made up of? What, what kind of members are going to make up our church? And um, there are basically uh, three different types of church that come out of an understanding of baptism. And I would say two of them are wrong understanding. First, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what do the Roman Catholics believe about baptism? What does it do for a person? All right. Yeah. Paul? Right. And and can someone be in the Catholic Church a true Christian without being baptized? And I don't know the answer to that actually, but I would I would guess no, but but you No, so you can't be a Christian, a true Christian according to them if you're not baptized. So you see how important baptism is for them. Right. That you need to. That you gotta do. You gotta do. Yep. Yep. So that's right. Yeah. Baptism is one of their sacraments, one of their ordinances. Um, and um, and so again, the the physical act of baptizing actually, like Mark said, conveys grace for that person, and and that is regardless of their intent or their belief about a person being baptized. They simply can be dipped in the water and that conveys grace to them. And this is contrary to what the Scriptures talk about with that our faith comes by grace through faith, not of any amount of works. Alright? So then you have, in addition to the Roman Catholics, you have the Pado-Baptists. Anybody have any idea what that is? Okay, it's infant baptizers. People who baptize infants. And those... Actually, we we have a lot of Protestants. Okay, when you think Protestant, Protestant Reformation, they protested against the Catholic Church. 
so we have a lot of Protestants who believe in paedo-baptism, infant baptism, uh, including the Methodists, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians. And they would argue that baptism of a child born into a believing family, okay, so let's just imagine that your family has a child and that child's born into your believing family. And so, in order for them to become a part of the covenant community of, let's just say, this church, then they need to be baptized. Okay, so it's a it's a rite of passage for them. And um, so they don't see it as a regenerating work like the Catholics do. That is, it doesn't convey grace for a person to um, for a person to be baptized. They would say that it. It's simply an act of obedience that a parent needs to have for their infant child. And um, they'll base their arguments on things like um, Acts 16.31 when the Philippian jailer responded and his whole household was baptized. Okay, but, but if you look a couple verses earlier, you see that his whole household believed. So the fact that they believed suggests that they were old enough to believe. Okay, and then there's some other examples of household baptisms, but but I think uh, there's no clear evidence of this sort of thing going on. In fact, one of the uh, proponents of this, B.B. Warfield, perhaps you've heard about him, former um, professor, I believe, at Princeton Seminary, Presbyterian theologian, believed in paedo-baptist. But here, here is his admission. Listen to this. Let's see if I have it here. Yeah. There is no express command... In the Scriptures, he's saying, to baptize infants. No express record of the baptism of infants and no passages so stringently implying it that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. Okay, but but obviously he would follow this up by saying, but we baptize infants anyway. Okay, there's no biblical proof for it. There's no pattern for it. There's nothing in Scripture that implies that we must baptize infants. But we do it anyway. Okay, so so the argument um, to defend their practice is, is basically an argument from silence that this must be happening. And uh, obviously, you know that arguments from silence are not very strong. Um, obviously, another argument that they use, and I've talked about this before, is they believe that Israel and the church are one and the same. And so that infant baptism is similar to Old Testament circumcision. So that just like in the Old Testament, you would have, you would, you would bring that child, that son, into the covenant community through circumcision. So you do the same in the New Testament, bringing them into the covenant community. Um, and they do put some guards on these things, Presbyterians and others. They they allow them to be a member of the church, but they don't actually have voting rights until. They show signs of spiritual life and things. So, um, but they—they, they, uh, I think that comes from a wrong understanding of of um, Israel and the Old Testament being the church, which I, I, as I've said in many other times, is not valid. Trish, yeah. Right. Okay, so obviously, I mean, baptism was something that happened in Israel when people would follow 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, you mean as far as whether infants will be baptized when they're following a person or really? I mean why did why did people get baptized then prior to Christ? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's always been one uh, a, for the purpose of identity. That is, you've been baptized with John's baptism. The idea is that you have followed John's teachings. And so this is why baptism into Jesus Christ, really, or or by the name of Jesus Christ, was so controversial. It was, it would draw a line in the sand. It would say, "I, as a Jew, am now committing myself to follow Jesus Christ publicly. I'm going to show you, this is Jesus' baptism." That doesn't mean that he had to be baptized by Jesus. You know that Jesus didn't really baptize uh, anybody, but, um, but but it was that I'm going to follow his teaching. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know the how to answer that question. I I don't know the answer. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure um what people thought of baptism before other than what the scriptures talk about John's baptism being one of identity with John's ministry. Paul Um, yeah, I mean, you don't have any, you don't have any cases in the Old Testament that I know of. So, I mean, that, but I do think that there was baptisms happening outside of the Christian faith. Um, but I just, I, I don't know enough about that to be able to answer that cogently. All right, so the right administration of baptism requires that only believers be baptized. Secondly, they must be baptized by immersion. Okay, you know what I mean by immersion there? I mean by dunking. Alright, going all the way under. The word literally in the Greek language means to immerse. So, to use the phrase, we're going to baptize by sprinkling, is actually uh, antithetical. It's an oxymoron. It would, it's saying, we need to immerse by sprinkling. That's what you're saying when you say that. So, that doesn't... Makes sense, and the the text is clear from the scripture that baptism was always by immersion. Mark one five, the people of Jerusalem went out to John the Baptist, confessing their sins. Listen to this: they were baptized in the Jordan River, not by the Jordan River, in the Jordan River. Uh, John's gospel also tells us that John the Baptist was baptizing people at Anon, and why? John 3.23 says, because there, there was plenty of water. There's a specific reason why baptisms had to happen there. Because there were plenty of water. If it was just by sprinkling, you didn't need plenty of water. Mark 1 indicates that when Jesus was baptized, He went down into the water and He came up out of the water. Okay, so, so it clearly show, doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Jesus to go down into the water, be sprinkled, and then come up out of the water. Right. Uh, Acts chapter eight. We've already talked about the Ethiopian official as they travel along the road. What does he say? Hey, here's some water. Why don't I be baptized? He sees a big body of water over here. But if you think about it, um, and I mentioned this when we were going through Acts chapter eight, 
where was the Ethiopian eunuch going? Where was he coming from first? Remember? From Jerusalem. And where was he going? Back home, right? Okay, so he's got a long journey. He's an official. He's going to have quite a bit of money. Do you think he would have had any water on him in his chariot for that long journey? Or would he have to stop every time he needed a drink? Okay, he probably would have had, I would say he likely would have had water if sprinkling was the way that baptism happens. Then he could have said to Philip, here, grab one of these water jars and pour it on my head. But he, he waits till he gets to a place where there's a large body of water and says, why not baptize me here? Um, and, of course, the, the passage also says, then both Philip and eunuch, and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Okay, so that again shows that that um, that baptism is by immersion. Further, the symbol of baptism shows that baptism is by immersion. What is the picture of baptism? What what is it supposed to picture? Right? Romans chapter six, verses three and four. Do you not all do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may walk in newness of life. How does that picture of sprinkling work with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Does it? It doesn't work. Okay, so we have the symbolism of baptism that also points us to, and you probably already believed in baptism by immersion, but I'm showing you why we believe that. Okay, Number three, baptism is not necessary for salvation, but is a symbolic act of obedience that expresses one's faith and submission to Christ. It's not necessary for salvation. A person could be saved, not baptized, and still go to heaven. Um but we do see that as an, as an act of obedience. We don't want to minimize it. We don't want to we don't want to to allow a person who's not baptized to remain that way. I mean, if he, if a person is truly saved, then they should follow the Lord in baptism, and we should want to see that. But but uh, we don't ever want to indicate to a person that that it is required for salvation. Because frankly, um, and the second part here, this this is important, okay? Because this determines what kind of people we we um, we can associate with on a church level, okay? And that is people who are walking in obedience to Christ. If we have a Presbyterian church, you know, who wants to associate with us, technically, they haven't been baptized by immersion. They haven't been baptized following their conversion, have they? And so, in that sense, they are actually walking in disobedience to God, right? And so in that way we can't I mean, we can't we can't associate with you. We 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 can still agree that we have the same gospel. We can still believe that those are Christians, but as a church we can't associate because we don't want to condone that belief that it's okay not to be baptized following your conversion. So a refusal to be baptized is actually disobedience to God. All right. Any questions on baptism? So adults who come into the Presbyterian church as older, are they then sprinkled or do they baptize by 
Yeah, um, I don't know for sure. I would guess that they would have to be baptized. A person that comes to Christ as an adult obviously wouldn't have been entered into the covenant community and they still that's still required in order to become a member. You have to have been sprinkled at some point. So I would just think that they would have to do that, but I don't, I don't know for sure. It wouldn't be by immersion. No, they don't do immersion at all. No. They don't have any tanks. Big enough. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So if you took... uh, Yeah, right. You could take the word baptize or baptism in your Bible and just change it to immersed or or immerse. And it would mean exactly the same thing as what the original authors intended because that is the meaning of the word. There's no other use of the word baptize where it doesn't mean immerse in the New Testament. Jonathan? Exactly. The word is baptismal, yeah, right. Baptismal is actually means immerse, and so they actually take the Greek word and turn it into an English word. Right. All right, let's uh, move on here. Try to cover the rest of these here. Um, right administrate. Second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Um, this is. Um, this is an ordinance that reminds us of Christ's um, giving of Himself to us, of our commitment to Him. Not only personally, we we often think of the Lord's Supper as, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray right now, but okay, this is my relationship with me and Christ, and it is, but it's more than that. It's actually all of these people who are taking the Lord's Supper with me. I'm joining in them in fellowship with the Lord and His body, what He's done for me. Um, so let me give you um, three three symbols of the Lord's Supper or th- the meaning of the Lord's Supper, why we have it. First, it symbolizes Christ's death. We symbolize Christ's death. We remind ourselves of what happened. That Remember that, that little wafer we take just reminds us of the body that was broken for us. And then the, the cup reminds us of the blood that was shed for us. And as I said, it's not just us. It's it's, we don't take the Lord's Supper one by one, right? You don't come down to my office and I give you the, Lord, the elements of the Lord's Supper or I don't go to your house and give you the Lord's Supper. No, we, we do it all as a group because we're a community of committed people that are, that, are, uh, that are committed to Christ. And the symbol of that is seen very clearly in the taking of the Lord's Supper. And uh, should also symbolize our spiritual nourishment. That just as... We eat ordinary food to help nourish our physical body. So, reminding ourselves of the death of Christ and His resurrection should nourish our souls spiritually. And then, finally, the unity of believers. We participate, um, we participate together, showing the unity that we have around the Lord's Supper. All right. There's a big debate uh, back in the uh, during the time of the Protestant Re- Reformation as far as what the Lord's Supper actually does. Okay, what does it mean when Jesus says, "This is my body"? And really, the the what's at stake there is what the meaning of the word "is" is. 
probably heard that sort of thing before. It's, it sounds um, it sounds kind of silly, but actually is takes on more than one meaning. For example, I could say this is my hand. Okay, that that shows equality. This is my hand. But I can also say James chapter three, I think it is verse six, where it says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Well, what do we mean when we say is? The tongue is a fire. Okay, that's a symbolic resemblance. And so when we have Jesus saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Hey, this is my this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember. What does he mean by is? Would you think that it has to do with the first one, equality? Or does it have to do with symbolic resemblance? And and you're right if you said the second one. It's symbolic resemblance. But that hasn't been the way it's always been understood. The Catholics believe in what's called transubstantiation, that the bread and the cup, okay, the bread and the juice, actually become the body and blood of Christ. And that's why they call it Mass, right? Because you're re-sacrificing Christ every time because His blood and body. Once the priest raises up that bread and that cup, and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, then it turns to it. I think that's when it takes place. Or does it turn when you actually gets in your mouth? No, it's when he does that. When he says it. Okay. In some of the older churches, they ring a bell. It's an attention getter. Like, hey, this is happening right now. And in the, uh, what they call the Tridentine Mass, or the old Latin Masses, they say, everybody's heard the phrase, the magic phrase, Pocus, pocus. Mm-hmm. It comes from Latin words, and it originates right there. Mm. Transubstantiation. Uh, they say something. I don't know the exact Latin, but it's akin to pocus, pocus, and that's mm. where it comes from. Wow. Magic. So the second way I need to get through the rest of these quickly um, is consubstantiation. This is Martin Luther himself. Remember, Luther was a Catholic, and he still believed in a somewhat literal sense of that phrase, that Christ has to be in the element somehow. And so here's how he explains it, that Christ is in, with, and under the elements. So it's not that He becomes the body, but sometime, somehow He is infused into the elements. And, and um, we take it as the third way, which is, is this is kind of an in-between, between identity or equality, this is my body, and and uh, spiritual presence or sim- symbolism. This is an in-between way. But this third one here is what we take it as. Do this in remembrance. That's why we say symbol. Okay, It's it's a symbol of our saving faith. It reminds us of what Christ did. John Calvin, by the way, not all the Reformers believed as Luther did. John Calvin uh, strictly opposed him. And... Uh, so there are three three requirements to be to participate in the Lord's Supper. One is you have to be a believer. Second, you have to have been baptized. And third, you have to be a I, I usually say a member of church of like faith and practice here. Those who are in good standing with God and with others. Okay. So so those are the requirements for the Lord's Supper. Um, a member of a church of like faith and practice, or you could just say good standing. We talked quite a bit about church discipline, so I'm going to have to skip over last week, so I'm going to have to skip over a lot of this. But when I say the right administration of the ordinances, this church discipline has a lot to do with that. 
Because in order to guard who is taking the Lord's Supper and who is not, we have to be willing to, that's why I say guarding the ordinances, church discipline. We have to be willing to judge those who are inside of our church, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. And um, the ultimate goal is to, when we see unrepentant sin in a person's life, is to restore that person. We don't want to see them excommunicated, to be removed, to be, as Paul says, handed over to Satan. We want to see them restored. But when a person is continuing in unrepentant sin, then we either remove the sin, and if they're not willing to do that, then we have to remove the sinner. And that helps protect the purity and the honor of the church. Um, another way that we guard both both of these important marks, the preaching and the ordinances, is through church government. Church government, a right church government. Let me just help you to see this by giving you three main structures that churches have Okay, in our day and, and have really going back to the second century. Um, well, some of them were. First, Episcopalian. You've heard of Episcopalian church? Okay, where the, the final authority resides in the archbishop. And I'm going to include uh, Roman Catholics under this because they have the same sort of structure. They, they probably wouldn't call themselves, wouldn't want to be labeled under this, but their final authority resides in one person as well, the Pope. Okay, so that's the Episcopalian church. That is, the members don't determine what the will of God is. They don't determine who gets voted in and who gets voted out. That all goes back to a, a hierarchy, right? Mark? When we have a final authority residing in one person in just secular government, yeah. what we call that? A monarchy? Well, if it's a king, if it's a royalty. Right. What is it? Dictatorship. Dictatorship? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, you have the same sort of thing here. Um, you know, you have a hierarchy where, you know, the priest has to go to his, his uh, what do they call it? Not a synod, but uh, um, the, the hardest, what's the next higher than the, than the diocese? Yes, thank you. So, you have the diocese, then you have the archdiocese, and then I think that goes all the way to the, the pope. And then the next type of church government is called Presbyterian. Presbyterian. And that means that the final authority resides in the Presbytery group of elders. And they try to get this from the New Testament and say that, that the elders are the ones who made all the decisions. And so in this type of structure, the, the, again, the, the church membership doesn't have any say. They can't determine you know, whether a person should be in or out they can't determine who joins, who doesn't. Uh, it's all up to the synod, the presbytery, the, the session, the general session, and so on. And at our church, as you may know, we have a congregational ruled church government where the final authority resides in the congregation. And I put in this last part here, as it submits to the Word. Okay, And that's important because we see the will of God that God, You tell us what You want us to do in Your Word, but in some cases, You don't give us specific names. Okay, I've, I use this example all the time, but should Jacob Bauer be the next pastor of Ambassador Baptist Church in 2009? Is that in the Scriptures anywhere? So we've got to use principles. We have to 
rely on the congregation and its wisdom. And um, so that's, uh, th- there's lots of reasons why we need a congregational system. And I would commend to you um, a sermon that I preached on July 5th. Okay, some of you are here, some of you are not because of the holiday, but go to our website, ambassadorbaptist.com, and look up this case for congregationalism. A case for congregationalism. And I lay out those three other, those other two options and tell you why that we are a congregational church and why we will remain. Okay, because I believe that there is a biblical case for it and a theological necessity for it. Paul. The password for. Oh, you don't. In order to listen to the sermons, you don't have to have a password. But I'll tell you the member password after I turn this off. All right. Mark. This goes back to baptism. Yep. 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 Are you familiar with uh, the Hebrew phrase mikvah? No. Okay. Rabbinical water purification. So it has this, anything that puts you in a right standing with God, the washing, ceremonial washing, that's where it began. Yeah. Yeah, and I could totally see that happening in the intertestamental periods between Malachi and Matthew. Totally see the, the Jews picking up on something like that. To try to, because you're right, yeah. In the, in the, if you think about it, in the temple and things, they had the washing with the, the water. Yep. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. I had to rush through those last couple things, but again, I, I think that that uh, teaching there on that Thursday afternoon service was um, would be helpful to you if you uh, if you looked into that, Bill. Yep, you may. I'm critical of a lot of things a lot of people say, and everybody here knows it. Free trip, free dispensation. If you don't know that, you ought to do it now. But 75 or 80% of the people lost in a roll are either lost because they believe in some form of baptism as regeneration or the way they accept the Lord's Supper. Oh, yeah. And they miss the truth. As you said before, you can be saved and go to heaven, but you can't be baptized for your salvation and go to heaven. Right. Right. And it goes back to a central teaching about the gospel that it comes through faith, not through works. Good. Thank you. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your grace and teaching us these things. We don't pretend to be the um, resident theologians or the the highest forms of intellectual knowledge, but we do trust in Your Word and in Your Word alone. And so we look to it for our understanding and for grace, and we ask that You would continue to help us to have wisdom to, um, to uh, incorporate these truths into our understanding and into our church and to recognize the weight that we bear, really, to maintain the purity of the church by promoting a right preaching of the Word and the right administration of the ordinances. Help us in this endeavor. We want to have a church that pleases you in the best possible way that we can. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.